I happened to be sitting at brunch and two tables over from me was a lady and she said to me, oh my goodness, I love your jacket. Where is it from? And I said, oh, I made it. She happened to be one of the senior buyers at Intermix and she said, well, I really love it. Will you come in for an appointment next week and bring whatever else you have? And I said, okay. Five days later, I walked out of her office with a purchase order for $150,000, not having a business incorporated, not having any plan of how I was going to deliver this product in, you know, six to 12 weeks time. And uh, it just started from there. Hi, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. If you are a frequent listener here, thank you. We appreciate your loyalty. And if you're new, welcome. Each week, we work here to demystify success. I know it's a weird word, doesn't mean everything to everyone, but the idea is happiness in the work that you do in your life. And we go about finding that by speaking to the world's most influential women across all different industries. And the conversations go beyond the resume. From decision-making to trade-offs to those pivotal moments that shape your careers and your lives. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. Okay, everyone, today we have an incredible guest with us sitting across from me. She was the first designer to use social media as a venue for fashion shows. Misha Nunu, back in 2015, did her entire runway show via Instagram. Her clothing brand is a favorite among the likes of Bella Hadid, Emma Watson, and the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, who happens to be one of Misha's close friends as well. And they recently collaborated online together, so we're going to get into that. She was a finalist for the 2013 CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, and she's been named to Crane's New York Business's 40 Under 40. Misha Nunu, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here with us. You have a fascinating backstory. You grew up in Bahrain. Yep. Yep. What was that like? I was born there, actually, and I was there until I was 10 years old. And it was, I have to say, it was a pretty idyllic childhood. Um, It was actually hard for me to then move to the UK because, you know, I grew up on a little desert island and, you know, my days were very active and outdoorsy and all of that. And then, you know, once I moved to... London, it was very grey and overcast and, you know, it started to get dark at 3.30 in the afternoon. And I struggled with that at first. Um, But then, of course, I grew to absolutely love London and it's such an integral part of me. But Bahrain was a really, really wonderful place. And I think it's definitely, and I'll go into this later, but um, it's definitely informed some of the work that I've done in terms of how I feel about, you know, women's rights and empowerment and all Mm. that kind of stuff. Tell me more about that. You know, I think that Growing up in a very traditional environment, which is how I would express how the Middle East tends to view kind of men's roles and women's roles, I think that from an early age, I was confronted with something that I didn't quite understand until I saw, you know, how interchangeable things were once I moved to the United Kingdom. And then, of course, France and especially in the United States, where things are so fluid between men and women and, you know, equality is so much more advanced and I think that uh, seeing the way that a lot of women covered, you know, their hair and traditional dress and things like that. You weren't doing that. Not at all. Bahrain is actually quite um, a liberal compared to other parts of the Middle East environment. Uh, so I didn't, you know, and I, I'm my background is actually, um, I'm of Jewish extraction. So uh, they're liberal also in the sense that they accept other religions, et cetera, et cetera, as other, other countries in the Middle East don't. 
or aren't as understanding. Um, so it was just something that I think I took with me and um, and maybe at the time I, I didn't really realize what that was going to mean and how that would change my future. But I've definitely um, looked at it through a lens of how I want women to have the choice mm-hmm. to do whatever it is that they want to do, whether they want to stay at home and, you know, be full-time mothers, look after their children, which is a wonderful choice, or if they want to, you know, have a career path, having that choice is so important in my mind. I agree with that. It must have been it must have been interesting. You were so young at the time. It's hard to really well, it's not it's not impossible, but it's hard to have seriously deep thoughts probably 100% pre 10 years old yes. about what's happening around you, but in some respects to be an outsider be a little bit different than the people around you and then to go to London at around 10 and finally see a, a much more, I guess, open society, that must have been pretty interesting as well to Definitely. say like, mom, dad, this is different. Why Definitely. are, why is everybody uncovered here? Totally. And of course, you know, my mother's English and I had grown up spending a great deal of time in the summer and the winter vacations, you know, with my family in the UK. So I'd, and, and actually uh, my parents met in New York City, so we'd always come to New York as well. So it's kind of been a part of what our a life, DNA Misha. from a young age. Yeah. But um, I think, uh, yes, it was something that I wasn't aware of as a young girl, but it definitely, I was confronted by it when I moved to the UK. But then interestingly, I went to a co-ed school in Bahrain and then went to an all-girls school in the UK. So found that there were certain mm. things that were actually, in in a sense, much more traditional. Um, and the way that women behave towards men at that young age felt you know, way more backwards than what I'd already experienced at my co-ed school up until that point. So I think that, you know, culturally, I've been exposed to a lot of different influences and I'm extremely grateful for all of it. Um, But it's all it's obviously all influenced where I am today. You were a finalist for the 2013 CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. You've been named to Forbes 30 Under 30 and Crane's New York Business 40 Under 40. Now that you're 33 years old, you're hitting the 40 Under 40 lists. Uh, Where did you get that hunger to be an entrepreneur in the first place? I think that from a young age, I always set out to build something. And, you know, people have often asked me, you know, do you treasure the idea of lineage or legacy? And, you know, it was always to me about your legacy and what you're building and how that will potentially outlive you um, or what you're creating that you can share with others, whether that's your children, your family or just other people, um, you know, customers, etc. So I think that um, the passion probably came from watching my father. He was extremely hardworking and, you know, how he built his business and how much he derived, you know, the passion that I saw him with going to work every day at, you know, 530 in the morning and and how when he came home, he was still clearly struggling and grappling with things that he hadn't quite finished that day. So I think that's probably that aspect uh, comes from him a little bit. But I think that I've just always wanted to build and create things. I'm a very, very visual person. And, you know, even when I think about making a speech or when I think about addressing someone or working with a customer, I actually see myself doing it before it happens. Mm. So I think there's that sense of manifestation that I've just always had. And you see yourself doing it successfully. Um, yes. <laughs> or do you yes. see yourself? No. Luckily, I don't see myself tripping up. Um, I see myself doing it successfully. And actually, to your point about the, the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, that was really early in my career. I was very, very young. I'd had the business for two years. You're speaking in front of a panel of um, Anna Wintour, Jenna Lyons, Diane von Furstenberg, you know, all these extraordinary people who are so accomplished in the industry. And um, I had never met any of them before. How did you prepare for that? 
Well, I was terrified is all I'll say. I, I don't feel like I, I ate or slept or even breathed for a week before it. Um, but I over-prepared in the sense that, you know, I practiced and I practiced and I practiced my presentation and it was a 15-minute presentation. And when it was over, people were like, oh my God, you didn't take beta blockers? I'm like, what are they? You know, I'm like, why am I only being told about them <laughs> Come now? on. <laughs> Seriously. So um, I think that uh, in that moment, what I had seen before was that I was successfully delivering something to people and I've just always... Um, try to really engage with the people that I work with or that I speak to and I see myself successfully doing that. Um, so luckily I don't see myself like tripping up in, in that realm at least. How did you initially get your start in fashion? Um, well, actually, I uh, when I moved here, it was kind of around the financial crisis. It was 10 years ago, it was 2009. And it was really difficult to get a visa because, of course, I'm, I'm not an American citizen. So I took a job with basically the only company that would sponsor me. And it happened to be a very small um, tailoring atelier in the garment district that sadly no longer exists. Um, but they still produced everything domestically and locally. And I saw that as a huge opportunity to learn. And I worked for the head designer. It was mainly menswear. But, you know, I learned everything from sourcing fabrics to pattern making to production. I happened to, on the side, two years later, make eight jackets and coats um, for myself. And you know, I didn't really have any business plan, but I guess maybe I was thinking about how I could commercialize it. And um, I happened to be sitting uh, at brunch at Prune on the Lower East Side with a bunch of girlfriends. <laughs> that place is great. It's, well, Have you yes. had the radishes dipped in butter? Delicious. It so doesn't, delicious. I, I'm sure there are listeners right now who are like, what's that about? But it's actually so great. So good, yes. And two tables over from me was a lady and she said to me, oh my goodness, I love your jacket. Where is it from? And I said, oh, I made it. She happened to be uh, one of the senior buyers at Intermix. Hmm. And um, she said, oh, well, I really love it. Will you come in for an appointment next week and bring what else, whatever else you have? And I said, okay. And, you know, five days later, I walked out of her office with a purchase order for $150,000, not having a business incorporated, not having any plan of how I was going to deliver this product in, you know, six to 12 weeks time. And um, and the first call I made was to my dad. And I was like, how am I going to do this? So, you know, we systematically went through how we were going to do it and what I had to do. And uh, it just started from there. Wow. So you went through it with your father and you basically reverse engineered it from that point? Pretty much, yeah. He was like, okay, he didn't understand how... What's to- his background? Finance. Finance, So okay. he's fully finance. He doesn't understand fashion. He's like, how do you make a garment? What have you got to do? And I walked him through every step of what I had to do. And luckily, I'd had that training from the position that I currently held. And he was like, okay... Well, start a company first and then like, let's move everything. Did move you everything. create an LLC at I that point? I created an LLC, yeah. Okay, so you filed some legal paperwork yeah. around yeah. taxes like, and everything else? If you want to get else. paid, then you're going to have to have a business. I'm yes. like, okay, yes. <laughs> so, um, so, so he kind of helped me. And, and as you say, we reverse engineered it and figured out the timeline. And, and, um, and, and we it did worked it. out? It worked out, yeah, and that was the start of my business. So there was no, oh my gosh, the jackets aren't here on time, and no, no. I mean, I was in the factory packing it, you know, in like this hot, sweaty. You weren't expecting someone else to execute this for you. You executed it. I did every single aspect of it whilst having another job, and they were like, "Why does she disappear in the middle of the day for like three hours at a time?" You know, and it was like (laughs) there was like packing every single box, and you know, polybagging it. You have to label it a certain way, reading instruction booklets. I mean, the whole thing I did from soup to nuts myself. And I think it's really important, actually, to have that background, if you can, in whatever industry you're entering. You said reading instruction books. So explain that. Well, because, you know, when you ship to a major retailer, they have the, you know, they have huge warehouses where they're receiving. So they have insane instruction leaflets for how you have to ship everything and everything has to be received in the same way. Because if you imagine, for example, like an Amazon 
who owns Shopbop, for example, who we also used to sell to, you know, someone's just receiving and they have they can't be looking for the label to scan. It has to just be in the same place. There's mm. an expectation. You get fined if you don't ship appropriately, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to get that right on time one. Otherwise, you're not going to have a time to. Totally. Not only that, but also, you know, they charge you back. So that's just going to affect your margin. Um, and, you know, of course, I understood what a margin was, but I was just like, is the product perfect? Mm-hmm. Luckily, it was. We sold through really well. And, you know, that was our start. I want to come back to that idea of is the product perfect? Because there's obviously, as a business owner, there's trade-offs that you have to make and choices. And you sound like somebody who really cares about quality. But this is not always a business that favors quality, totally. especially not today when you have fast fashion and things like Completely. that. But I want to hit on this question first about luck, because you sort of touched on it. And someone at a University of Chicago, I went to the University of Chicago and a University of Chicago um, student recently reached out to me and he was asking me on the phone, how much do you think all of this is about luck? Mm-hmm. And it made me take a step back because I think that luck plays a role in everything. Yeah. Whether you're in the room with the right person or not plays a role in the next opportunity. But how you prepare to be in that room, how you insert yourself into opportunities that might put you in the right place, those are not lucky things. Those are things that just take tons of hard work. And and they don't always pay off. And you have to be okay with that not paying off immediately, too. Yes, absolutely. What you just said, you kind of just nailed it, actually. Preparation. I think luck is one thing, but how many opportunities have passed us by that we don't even recognize because we weren't prepared? Mm -hmm. We didn't see it as an opportunity. Uh, There's a million things. You know, I think that The Alchemist is one of my favorite books and, you know, it talks about beginner's luck and how and that was certainly beginner's luck. It set me off on my journey. and It was clearly my path to do this. But um, along the way, there have been so many downs as well as ups. So I think that, you know, opportunities present themselves daily and let's call luck an opportunity. And if you aren't there, open, prepared to receive that opportunity, if you aren't wide awake for it, um, and we're not always, then, you know, if you're having an off day, an opportunity or that luck might just pass you by. So I think that it's really just about being prepared and having your eyes open. You mentioned the downtimes mm-hmm. and they're in everybody's career. Yep. Tell me about one specifically and how you manage through it. Many times that I've really kind of innovated um, in the industry have been because there's been a bad time that's preceded it. And it, it happens to be a lesson that I then take. And I think that I am someone who um, looks at failure as an opportunity. And a lot of people might not even call it failure, but I, I have very, very high standards and there are a couple I can speak to, but one to start with would be um, I was looking at, you know, I had gone through the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, been one of the top 10 finalists, hadn't won. And this is 2013, 2014. 2013, yeah. And we had been, um, you know, showing collections because people had advised us to in a runway format. Now, you know, runway in New York City during New York Fashion Week, which obviously has changed shape so much in the past five to six years as well, um, has... It was very expensive. So, all of, well, how, what does it cost to produce a runway show? Listen, for we were get, we were having major sponsorship deals. You know, we had Tresemme sponsoring our hair. We had Bobby Brown sponsoring our makeup. We had Aldo Shoes sponsoring our shoes, and you know, there was a lot of financial attachment to that. So, so uh, there was a lot of money sponsored, but even out of pocket ourselves, we'd be spending minimum two hundred thousand dollars per season. And for a small business, that's really your whole 
marketing budget per season. I mean, not the whole, but also this is before digital marketing, so it's a different sure. situation. But still, but that's a lot of money, and and, and that doesn't necessarily translate into buyers. It gets you, it not. gets you some excitement, but it's also excitement at the same time as everybody else is doing their excitement, right? So you're competing with the eyeballs and the excitement, identical. So it just didn't really make sense. Like, you do do many products do product launches at the same time as all of their competitors. To me, it was just like, this doesn't make sense. So we had been doing runway shows because the industry said that in order to really, you know, have credibility, you had to do this. And after about two years of doing it, I was really struggling with that notion because it just didn't make sense to me for all the reasons that I just said. And so I um, decided that, you know, Instagram was, was becoming very popular. And I decided not because anything had failed necessarily, but because... I didn't think that we were getting the maximum out of what we could to um, work with Instagram on doing a whole show over Instagram and calling it the first to do that. First runway show on Instagram. Yes. And so, um, you know, I spoke to some of the major institutions um, like the CFDA and I was like, will you give us a letter and, you know, say that you're backing us in this and that it's a great idea. And they're like, no. And I was like, (laughs) "Okay," You know, so I was like, oh, my God, I'm really on my own here. Because they wanted the old way of things. And I think that they also, you know, institutions tend to be afraid to really get on board with anything that is risky. Mm -hmm. And of course, this could have fallen flat on its face. There were a million things that could have gone wrong. And um, luckily, everything aligned. And I suppose that's your that's your luck that you're talking about. But again, we were extremely prepared for it. And it was a hugely successful. And it led then to one year later, me actually relaunching the business as a fully direct consumer business. Because at the same time as growing tired with runway, I started to look at every aspect of my business, which then a year later made me look at supply chain and, and production. And now we're an on-demand sustainable business. But it first of all, I looked at, you know, our retail model and how we were working with wholesalers and how wholesale was really plateauing. And every conversation I had with a wholesaler was like hitting my head against a wall because they didn't understand that, you know, some maybe a maybe a customer wanted to have something that was a diverse product and not seen in every single department store. Mm-hmm. But people were afraid to take risks. And many people still are. And I think that that is really a big part of what makes you an entrepreneur is when you are willing to put yourself out there and and take risks quite publicly. And of course, certainly financially. So, you know, it was kind of, listen, the business was plateauing. It wasn't failing, but that's what, you know, made me go direct to consumer and put all my eggs into that basket. And then a year later, um, it's what made me launch on-demand manufacturing. And, you know, it was because after four months of being a, a retailer and holding inventory and seeing that, you know, by November, people are already um, discounting full winter stock. And, you know, on the East Coast, it isn't even cold by November, let alone what's going on in the middle of the country or the West Coast. I was like, why does anybody actually have to pay full price for anything? So what about our margins? Nobody believes they have to pay full price for anything. And Look we at we that. Did, Amazon Prime Day has completely, completely changed. changed everything. And that's five years old. And, and I think that that's the commoditization of goods and services and all of that kind of thing. And I thought, you know what, we're going to build a product that's a little bit more rarefied. We're not going to be on promotion and it's going to be scarcer. It's going to be made as and when people want it and are willing to pay for it. And that totally changed, you know, everything on its head. And it's it's really been pretty incredible ever since that. But um, But now again, I'm looking at the business and I'm like, what else are we going to change and how are we going to look at... All of these different things. So I'm, I'm constantly thinking about how to do things differently. And I'm never kind of satisfied with the status quo. 
Is there anything you've thought of that you've decided not to do? Oh, God, many things. I mean, you know, whether that's like hiring certain very, very senior staff, uh, whether it's opening physical retail before we did. Um, I think that a lot of the time it's less about deciding not to do something and more about the timing of when you do something. So all of those things will end up happening. It's just how quickly you do them. And I'm an exceptionally impatient person, which (laughs) is probably my greatest flaw. Um, because nothing's, you know, it's never good enough. And Does that come from your father? It comes a hundred percent from my father. And and that pressure to, you know, always be better and improve yourself. And that is it can be stressful for a business, you know, because if you're you know, you you kind of have to allow people to meet you on your terms and your territory before you push them again. It's it's about trying to balance things. I'm when a Libra, it, but I'm like Oh, oh no. me too. When's your birthday? October twentieth. I'm September 28th. Ah, we're both at either end. Yes. There you go. Hear more from Misha Nunu after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm sure the the manufacturing on demand concept is something that's enticing to a lot of business, especially startup business owners, because there's limitations on how much capital you have to use up front. How did you figure out the right manufacturing partner to do things with? To be totally honest with you, it was pretty much the only one that would do it with us. So, you know, we used to produce everything domestically and, of course, first went to all of our domestic manufacturers and asked them if they would do this with us. And it was a resounding no. Um, Really? Resounding. That's a big loss for U.S. manufacturers. I think so, too. I mean, you know, we went to New York and we went to L.A. and uh, we said, would you do it? This is the way that it's going to work, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody said, absolutely not. Was it because the, the cost was too high? They said, we'll charge you sample prices for each piece. So say a shirt costs $50 to manufacture. They were going to charge us $200. And I said, well, that's not the point. You know, we're still going to be producing Mm -hmm. the quantity. It's just going to be piece by piece by piece. Mm -hmm. They could not wrap their heads around it. I mean, it is, you know, pretty groundbreaking if you think about how manufacturing is traditionally done. And so I then went to China and uh, spoke to a lot of bigger manufacturers. And they were like, you know, we're just not cut out to do this. Our runs, our minimums are 300 units at a time. And I said, okay, understood. And it was actually through the CFDA, through a connection through one of my mentors at the CFDA. She knew of a very small female-owned factory in between Hong Kong and Shenzhen. And um, she said, why don't you meet with this lady? And she happened, you know, Bonnie, my manufacturing partner, happened to have grown up in New York City. She went to Nightingale until she was 16 and then moved home to Hong Kong. And um, so as a result, she has a very entrepreneurial mindset. She's quite flexible. She's very, very clever. And I said, listen, will you try this with me? And she was the only person that said, yeah, let's give it a go. And she didn't make me guarantee a certain, you know, dollar manufacturing at the end of the year or any of that stuff. And it allowed both of us to really grow significantly together. And, True you know, partnership. Totally. And we're definitely her biggest client now. But she really took a gamble. And, and that's how I selected her. Basically, she was the only one. And it worked out. But it also sounds like, again, this kind of plays on the idea of luck. You found somebody through your hard work yes. who ended up introducing you to this person who seems to be a really great fit yes. for the business. Totally. 
totally. And I think, you know, again, to that point of luck is that if you knock on enough doors, you'll get a break and you'll get an opportunity. But it, it does take a lot of tenacity. You also mentioned earlier your your pieces are not the going out for Saturday night. It's right. it's a functional wardrobe. Yes. yes. So what was your thinking behind it? Was that the the vision that you came in with in the beginning? This was a white space in the market? Um, so when I first started the business, it definitely wasn't. When I had a wholesale business, it was very much a fashion brand. It was seasonal. It was printed. It was colorful. It was all those things. And it was actually having had that business for five plus years that made me so revolted by the idea of a trend, by the idea of, you know, color, print, any of that stuff. I thought, this is just not what we need more of. And so it was with that white space in mind of this kind of capsule collection, less is more. Um, how can you get the most out of what you have? And I think that I was so um, overwhelmed by the idea of product pollution, having worked in the industry for so many years and seeing what's out there that I thought, Nobody needs more of that. What we need is more specialized product that takes, you know, a lot of time to think about and conceive. And one of our best-selling products is a shirt called the Husband Shirt. And, you know, it's really taken on life of its own at this point. But it took me a good four months to really conceive of every aspect of that shirt, from the fit to the stud detail to everything. And that's probably why it's so successful. You're wearing one right now. I am wearing one right now. I have many in every different color that we, you we know. We will post it on Instagram <laughs> yes. so our listeners can see what it looks <laughs> like. But, you know, it's, it's I think that product, a special product, and you think about like the, the products that we use every single day, most of them are pretty special. Like the things that really earn a place in our lives are things that have taken months, even years to conceive. You know, think about the technology that we use and things like that. It's not something that someone's conceived of in a day by sketching, you know, 50 sketches. So I just wanted to take a slower approach, despite my impatience, um, <laughs> to really conceiving product and thinking about how it would live with you for a long time. What's the hardest lesson you've had to learn along the way, other than the fact that you want to take a slower approach, even um, though you want to be fast? I think that the hardest lesson is understanding that, you know, we live at a time, you know, of course, being a retailer, we are always having to think about our customer, her lifestyle, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, as a boutique brand, when you live in a time of like Amazon and Amazon Prime Day and things like that, you know, there's such a commoditization of product where things aren't important. And personally, I think so long and hard before I buy a plastic bottle of water or I'm so considered about, you know, if I order something, am I even on Amazon, am I really going to use that or is it just taking up space in my apartment? And I think that um, I may be, you know, as Malcolm Gladwell was, would say, an early adopter in that sense. I do think that the world is is kind of slowly moving towards that. But I just think that we live in a time where consumers don't think long and hard enough before they actually purchase something. Um, and that's, you know, my problem with the, the idea of fast fashion and Zara and Topshop and all of those things, because ultimately you have to think about if you're buying something for $25, what about the person that's made that product? You know, take out the cost of the fabric and then the shipping and all of those kind of other margins. How much is someone being paid to make that shirt, top, trouser? And I think that, you know, I have a hard time. I struggle with that because I think about it enormously. And I, I think a lot of other people just it's not something that crosses their radar screen often. It's a very good point. Um, you mentioned legacy. Mm -hmm. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, I think that. Ultimately, the thing that I love the most about this business is empowering women, equipping women with clothes that are going to take them in any direction that they want to go. 
And that's always what I've wanted for myself. Um, you know, I've always wanted the freedom to live life in any way that I choose. I think that that's what I aspire to do is to really um, lead by example in that sense. Um, so it's about creating clothes that take, you know, that go on a woman's journey with them. And I feel so deeply privileged to be able to do that. So you and your dear friend, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, recently teamed up on this brand new line. Yes. How did that come together? You know, it was actually a very organic process. Um, the Duchess became the royal patron of Smartworks, um, the charity in London that uh, was the beneficiary of uh, the collaboration. And um, she said to me, you know, I've been spending time with these ladies and it's a really extraordinary cause. Um, I have been looking at the wardrobes that are available to these women, you know, because a lot of it is donation based currently. And, you know, they might have 30 lilac blazers from X brand and they're beautiful. They're really well made. They actually might be very expensive at retail. So it's a really kind contribution and gift. But a lilac blazer isn't really going to take you to your job interview and beyond. Mm. So she was like, I'm thinking about putting together a capsule collection. And, you know, I'd love for you to be a part of it. Will you design the white shirt, please? And I said, absolutely. And so then she onboarded the other brands as well. And that that was, you know, what created the smart set. How did you guys work together as friends? Yeah, so it was very collaborative. Um, I would say that, you know, she, the Duchess is incredible. Uh, she has an amazing work ethic, always has done. But what was most incredible was that she, at least in my experience, because I, I obviously don't know about the other brands, but personally, she um, really entrusted me with the responsibility of designing the piece and said, you know, that's what you do. And, um, you know, when I showed her what I was thinking, you know, we had a little bit of a conversation about, you know, what what other items it might be worn with, the fact that it should be tailored, where this woman was going. And, um, and when I showed her the idea that I had, she was like, sounds great. So it was, you know, it wasn't, it was collaborative and, you know, we went back and forth about te over text about it or when we saw each other, we talk about it, but um, she definitely left the design process to me. And there's also that giving angle. So for yes. every piece that's purchased, one item is donated yes. back to SmartWorks. Yes. Tell me more about SmartWorks. So SmartWorks um, in the UK is a similar concept to Dress for Success in the US, which you might mm -hmm. already know. So um, the idea, and, and I had actually been to visit SmartWorks uh, before I officially got involved with the organization. And um, and it's quite incredible. I'd never met one of the, the clients before, but at the launch, you know, was able to meet them. And they're very uh, careful about, you know, some of these women are in extremely vulnerable positions in their life when they come to the organization to be dressed and to be coached through, you know, a job interview, etc. When I finally got to meet them, the ladies were so grateful, not only for the clothes, but for the process that they go through. And um, the charity takes ladies who have been unemployed for, you know, a prolonged period of time, uh, for whatever reason that might be, and helps them and coaches them get back into the workforce. And, you know, really equips them with the tools they need, whether that's coaching through a job interview, the wardrobe to get the job, and then afterwards, mentorship circles, so that they have a network of women that are also working they can connect with. Do you think you and the Duchess might do more together? Um, I really couldn't say, but it was such a joy working with her. So um, I would be very, very happy to. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? I think that it would be when I was raising my seed round, and I've only ever raised a seed round, and this was about two years ago. Um, it was only advice actually that I received from men. And they said always to raise more money than uh, than what I needed. And I always kind of scratch my head at that because I, I'm very responsible fiscally and um, you know really understand that money comes with strings attached to it and certain expectations, et cetera, et cetera. And... Um, 
And I think that idea of scarcity is just not how I've ever approached life. And I thought, you know, I need X amount right now. Why am I going to ask for more? Um, so I'm, I, I actually didn't take that advice. And I'm really happy that I didn't because I think that you see a lot of people who raise, raise, raise money. And, you know, they get really gung-ho about it. And then either they end up going out of business or they raise a down round next or any of these things. Um, so personally, I, um, I just don't really... I don't really agree with that approach to life. Was it difficult to not take that advice? I would imagine that the people giving it to you had some background, some track record that might at least, despite the fact that they didn't quite understand what you were after, that they might at least be taken somewhat seriously. Um, yeah, th- th- certainly there were moments. But actually, to be honest with you, money is not that easy to come by as a woman. Uh, Mm. especially when you're trying to raise from, you know, like VC funds and all that kind of stuff. And I felt extremely grateful for the money that I raised. And frankly, I didn't want to go on with that fundraising. I wanted to put the money that I was, you know, looking to raise in place and move forward with my plan and prove myself. And that was uh, the idea of fundraising eternally. There are some people who are phenomenal at it, but that's just not me. And um, I wanted to get on with my work and, and my business. It's interesting. I bet there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs who are really good at the fundraising part. The execution part might not be their thing. Probably. And I'd you know rather why? be better at the execution part, but you need the money. Totally. So that's why there's a lot of great partnerships. You hire exist, them, you know? right? So I think that any great fundraiser needs a great executor and, and likewise the other way around. It's like people always say, um, they're often quite shocked that I'm the CEO of the business and I'm actually the creative director and, and design every single piece in the collection because they're like, every creative needs to have somebody who's going to do the business side. How do you do the business side? And I'm like, I actually went to business school and um, whilst the creative interests me more than the you know kind of like actual fiscal side of it, I think that you need to be able to understand every aspect of the business in order to kind of manage it appropriately. Um, Obviously, we hope we get to a certain size where I'll be able to pass certain things off, but no one's going to care as much as you are. That's very true. You want buy-in. You definitely want buy-in from everybody. And that's such a... It's not the easiest thing to hire for because some people might seem like they're really into it and then they actually get inside and it's not that way. Yeah. Or like a lot of people think that they're going to come and work at a fashion, you know, startup that's very innovative and it's going to be so glamorous. Right. And I'm like, I say often, I'm like, just so you know, it's deeply unglamorous and it's a lot of hard work. And I just want to tell you exactly what you're signing up for. But I also believe very strongly in a work-life balance. So that's a very important thing to remember in my mind. That's good. Okay. Thank you so much, Misha Nunu. Thank you. This was really interesting. Thank you. Such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Okay. It is the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Stacy Brinkman. She's the founder and CEO of Sips Buy. It's a monthly tea subscription, and she was nominated by Grace Joyle and Katie Higgins. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, my name is Stacey Brinkman, founder and CEO of SipSpy. The biggest challenge I've faced to date um, is in continuing to believe in myself as the business continues to grow. So I've heard about imposter syndrome and I thought I'm so confident in myself. I've been that way since I was a little kid, Um, but there's something about growing 
the business beyond, um, that just continues to be a challenge. You have to increase your ability to have nice things um, and to believe in yourself, uh, which is just so important. It sounds so cliche, but it's just so true. Stacey, thanks so much for sharing your challenge with us. I think imposter syndrome is something that a lot of people struggle with, but I wish you and your company continued success. Thank you to Grace and Katie for the nomination. Remember, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Stacy. Also, if you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits entrepreneur, you can send me those nominations at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Send over career questions. We love hearing from you. And finally, a shout out to the team who helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn. And thanks to ABC Audio. We'll see all of you here next week.